Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Guys, why don't you grab a seat? Okay, welcome back. My name's Mike. I'm still a recovering sexaholic. Glad I'm here sober tonight through God's grace and you people. Someone want to grab that door, please? Great, thank you. So what I was going to do, I was going to talk about individual sobriety tonight uh, and then talk about cultural sobriety later tonight or tomorrow, but Zev said that... uh, he thinks the bigger crowd will be tonight and that really the focus is more of the, the group sobriety. So we may or may not get to the individual, and if we do, it might be tomorrow. But for tonight, I'm going to talk about group sobriety, culture sobriety. Um, so I'm going to start uh, by reading a couple traditions to you. You are probably familiar with this book, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions from Alcoholics Anonymous. And... Um, Usually, especially when you're new, if you hear that someone's having a tradition meeting, you hope you have another engagement, and if you don't, you quickly make one so that you can lie and say, oh, I have something else to do. It's sort of have to. You do. As soon as you found out there was a tradition meeting, you went and planned something so you didn't have to come. But actually, the traditions are awesome because they try to do for the groups what the steps try to do for the individual. So my purpose tonight... And we're just going to do this till 10 o'clock. I'm going to talk for 45 minutes to an hour. Hopefully, I'll stop by then. Uh, and then we'll just take questions. Because this is really the heart of why I came. Um, so first, let me just read Tradition 1. <clears throat> Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends on essay unity. I'm going to read it a second time because a lot of people don't always catch things on the first time. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon SA unity. Okay? Now, that's nice. But the problem is it doesn't explain enough. But in the back of this book, they have the long form of the traditions, which is the most wonderful thing God ever created, is the long form of the traditions, because it explains a little bit more. Because this, this tells us, basically, group before individual. That's the message, which is a, a terrifying message to any sexaholic not in recovery. What do you mean, group before individual? You're here to save me. I'm here to get sober. It's all about me. It was all about me when, it was, when I was drunk, and now that I'm newly sober, it's still all about me. And this thing says, no, no, our common welfare comes first. Personal recovery depends on SA unity. Right, it doesn't give us enough. So we go to the long form. Each member of Sexaholics Anonymous is but a small part of a great whole. So we're getting a little bit of the, the, the thinking behind it. Each member, that's us, each one of us is but a small part of a great whole. Essay must continue to live or most of us will surely die. 
So now we're getting some reason why the group's more important than the individual. <clears throat> because essay must continue to live or most of us will surely die. Now we used this example before about the difference between alcoholism and sexaholism if you had a drunk guy in the room. It's the same thing with death. An alcoholic death is pretty obvious. A sexaholic death can be, but sometimes it isn't. You know, sometimes it's pretty obvious. You, you know, you die of AIDS or you die of uh, some other sexually transmitted disease or, you know, you're, 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 in the, you're in the whorehouse on the wrong night and they come in and they blow your brains out, whatever. But a lot of times it's, it's a spiritual death. If you're walking around, you're technically alive, but I don't mean to be offensive, but you've had your head up your rear end for so many years, nobody even knows you're alive anymore. You know, we have a joke. We say, you know, that guy's been dead for 30 years. Nobody told him. <laughs> There's people like that. So each member of Sexaholics Anonymous is a small part of a great whole. Why? Because SA must continue to live or most of us will surely die. Hence, our common welfare comes first. So if you're looking for the reason, it's explained totally and clearly in the second half of this tradition. And then my favorite sentence but individual welfare follows close afterwards. You can imagine them sitting around and somebody says to Bill Wilson, he says, you better put something in about the individual. You're going to scare them all away. Our group will be disbanded. Because we are, we're very self-centered when we come in. And in a way that's good because we're finally taking stock of ourselves and wanting to do something for ourselves, but we still have that sense that it's really about us. And it's really about our comfort, our convenience, what we're entitled to, what we deserve. And there's a place for all that in the world, but I don't know if there's too much of a place for it in Sexaholics Anonymous. The more we can get away from that sense that it's all about me to that sense that it's all about us, and that without us, there ain't going to be much of a me, then we're starting to make that subtle shift from a meeting to a group, from a collection of individuals to a collection of like-minded people with a common goal. And that's what we're shooting for. As I like to say to my wife, in my humble and totally correct opinion. <laughs> now, <clears throat> you guys like that better than she does. <laughs> anyway, now I want to read Tradition 5. Each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the sexaholic who still suffers. Wait a minute. I thought the group's purpose was to help me stay sober. That's not what it says. I thought the group's purpose was to help me stay sober so I can be a good husband and father. Well, that's sort of implied in there, but it's not what it says. What it says is each group has but one primary purpose, to carry the message to the sexaholic who still suffers. The group's purpose isn't the group, it's the guy who comes into the group. And my question is always, if a guy walked in here tonight for the first time, or tomorrow morning and you're meeting at 7 o'clock, whatever it is, if they walk in for the first time and they really want to stay sexually sober for the rest of their lives, they want to make this the number one priority for their lives, are you truly there for them? Do you have a group strong enough to give that man or woman what they're looking for? That's what this tradition's talking about. Each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to sexaholic who still suffers. Now, we go to the long form. In this case, it's almost exactly the same with just a slight twist. The long form is each sexaholics anonymous group ought to be a spiritual entity having but one primary purpose, that of carrying its message to the sexaholic who still suffers. 
Now that can get tricky. What's a spiritual entity? In a room full of Orthodox Jews, we could debate this probably for the next 50 years, and at the end, be nowhere closer to when we started, right? But, I, but we don't want to do that. We might want to, but we're not going to. See, in the Catholic tradition, the priest just gets up and says, I'll tell you what it means, and if anybody dares say anything, they're shamed for the rest of their lives. So it's a little different. <laughs> but anyways. But an entity, an entity has some substance. You know, an entity has, 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 a, little, uh, has a little depth. You know, an entity is something you have to bump up against. You know, it's, it stands for something. And um, tells us what, what we, this is another thing it says here I, I like. Ought to be a spiritual entity having but one primary purpose. That of carrying its message to the sexaholic who still suffers. It doesn't say carrying the message. It says its message. Each group has to, it, it, it's pretty much the same as the next group's message, yes. But each group has to develop it itself. It has to get a message. Do you know how many meetings of Sexaholics Anonymous there are from one end of this country to the other that don't have a message? Or they do have a message, but the message is, you know, maybe you'll get a little bit better if you hang around with us. Hey, we have lovely fellowship. We've been here 10 years, and our longest sober members got 36 days, but don't worry about it. Come on in. We have lots of nice cookies and coffee. That's, that's, that is, that's it. That's not, but that's not a spiritual entity, and that's not a group with a message. Okay. So how do we get there? I didn't bring any notes this time. I usually have notes, but I'll remember most of it. But I do want to refer you to something. This is literature. It's called Practical Guidelines for Group Recovery. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but it's wonderful if you're trying to become, move more from meeting towards group. Whether you haven't done that at all or whether you're in the process, wherever you are in that process, this is great. I'm just going to read you the headlines of the different topics. Topic one, stick to the group's primary purpose. Topic two, bring God into your life and into your group. Topic three, establish the right priority. Incorporate a book study into your meetings. Keep sobriety in the group consciousness. Keep sharing, focused on the solution. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Get involved with newcomers. Don't debate the principles. Create a fellowship where sponsorship is a matter of course. Raise your hand if you have a sponsor. All right, pretty good. Almost everybody. Okay, excellent. Uh, Create a fellowship where working the steps is a matter of course. Keep member-to-member calling in the group consciousness. It's pretty simple stuff, but if you read it all, it's about 13 pages. It's, it's great stuff. Call special check meetings, which we'll talk a little bit about. Uh, okay, so this is just a good thing. If, if After I leave and you forget everything I said, and you say, what was some of that stuff about? This is good. Okay. <clears throat> so like I said, when I was in SAA, it was great, but there was a problem. The problem was everybody defined their own sobriety. That was one of the problems. Um, So this guy would say, masturbation, I got to stop. Next guy would say, I'm trying to cut my masturbation to three times a week. Next guy would say, I'm trying to masturbate without sexual fantasies. I would shake his hand and say, man, good luck. (laughs) Freaking fantastic. How how do you do that? And why would you want to? But anyway, anyway. No. Next guy would say, I got to stay out of relationships for a year. And the next guy would say, uh, I met her last week at the SAA meeting and we're getting married in three weeks. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. This happens. And after a while, 
very nice, good people helping each other, good intentions, but no sense of what I just read to you. No sense that the group was more important than the individual, and no sense of a, an entity developing with the message. It just wasn't there. So somehow my brother finds out about essay, we start that, and we start going along. And we're doing okay, but along the way, we realize some things. Um, and, and I just use examples that, as, as they come to mind. So one is that there, there's this thing about compassion. Compassion is a wonderful word. I mean, to have true compassion is one of the most wonderful things you can have. But a lot of us misunderstand it, what compassion is. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story that is not true, but I like to use it as an example. My son is 16 years old. He's got his driver's license. I've lent him the car. He comes home drunk, and he's gotten in an accident. And I think maybe there's been a gal in the back seat that just smells a little perfumey to me. It smells a little like pot, too. And I ground him for six months on the car. I says, first time, and he'd do all this, no car. Six months later, he says, Dad, my six months is up, and I've learned my lesson. I want to go out Friday night. I want to borrow your car. I said, sit down, son. He says, I'm going to give you a chance. I have a few simple rules. No alcohol, no pot, no women in the car, home on time, no car accident. Can you do those five things? He says, yes, Dad, I can. I says, okay, here's the keys. I want you home at midnight. I'm sleeping. I'm dreaming. I'm having this great dream. The Cubs are winning the World Series again in my dream. <laughs> sounded like a Yankee fan. <laughs> and I know you've won 18 out of 20, but let's not bring in too many outside issues. <laughs> anyway, it's two in the morning, and I hear some clanking. And I think, oh, what's going on? Then it dawns on me, oh, no, my son had their car. I come downstairs, I open the door. My garage is half falling down because he's run into it. I go up to the car. He's passed out on the steering wheel. It reeks of perfume and booze and pot. And I look in the back seat and, oh, my God, there's some 17-year-old girl back there. And I can't be looking at her. I'm a recovering sexaholic, for God's sake. <laughs> Here's what I don't do. I don't say to my son, it's okay. I love you. Keep coming back. I don't do that. And if I did, you'd think I was nuts. You'd say, what a crappy father. No wonder this kid drinks. His father lets him get away with murder. He, he tells him no matter what he does, he's great. I mean, he's, done, he's broke every rule, and the father's just kissing his butt. What a, what a loser father. Where did this guy come from? Yet here we are in Sex of Hawks Anonymous. This is what we do with relapse. We coddle it. We're so worried we'll hurt somebody's feelings. We're so, we're so worried we'll shame somebody. There's a lot of talk about shame. Most of us don't even know what it is, but we talk about it every single day. You know? Um, if you don't want to feel shame, I'll give you, I'll give you one hint. I'm, not, I'm no expert. I'm no psychologist, but I'll just give you one hint. Don't do anything shameful today. You will feel less shame than if you do do something <laughs> shameful today. That's a hint. Okay? 
This is kind of how we treat relapse in a lot of our groups. And I don't know enough about your group to know where on the continuum you are on this, okay? But in our group, what, what, what we would do is we'd have this meeting, and the chairperson at the end would ask someone to say the Lord's Prayer at the end of the meeting, okay? And invariably, for years, the person who would be asked to say the Lord's Prayer would be the person who told the saddest relapse story that week. So, you know, what's your name again? David. 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 Would share, I got three years of sobriety today. Way to go, David. What's your name? Yosef. Yosef would share. It's just hypothetical. <laughs> hypothetical. <laughs> Yosef would share. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't help you there, Yosef. <laughs> <laughs> Yosef would share. I feel really bad about this. I, I, had, I had 40 days for the seventh time in the last three years. <laughs> and I, uh, I meant to stay sober that day. But I walked by an adult bookstore and I went in and I actually had 400 quarters in my pocket <laughs> just, just by coincidence. And I used them all. <laughs> and I acted out seven times. So now the meeting ends and the chairman's he looks at this guy who's got three years. He goes, yeah, that was boring. <laughs> and he says, Yosef, would you lead us in the Lord's Prayer? Well, somebody comes up to me after a meeting one day and says this really radical, profound, and really hard to understand thing. Wouldn't it be better if you asked the guys who were sober to lead the prayer at the end of the meeting? Light bulb number one in our group. First moment of moving from a meeting that coddles the individual no matter how badly they're doing, to a group that says, geez, if we want to encourage sobriety, why don't we have sober people lead the prayer at the end of the meeting? I mean, it just seems like the littlest thing. It seems like the most obvious thing. Had never thought of it. We changed it. Group started getting more sober. Um, we learned over time <clears throat> to come to, to have an expectation that everybody, once they got their feet on the ground, would stay sober. Now, does everybody stay sober? No. But in our group, which averages between eh, slow nights, 45 people, big nights, 65 people, probably averages in the low 50s, okay? Uh, I think uh, 15 to 20 of those 50 over a decade of sobriety, another... 10, 15 guys with three, four, five, six, you know. In other words, it's a pretty sober group. Um, and one of the ways it got that way is, is we, started, we started moving from, you know, well, we hope you get sober to we expect you to stay sober. That's what we're here to do. How can we be a spiritual entity with a message if we don't have a message? How can we have a message of sobriety unless the vast majority of us are sober and staying that way? And so... You know, people come up, you know, I, I got a couple of jokes before the meeting today about, you know, be, be gentle on us, you know. And I, I get it. I, I somehow have this reputation. I'm really tough. I'm really not. I'm not that, I'm not that tough. But I'm, but I'm really sober and I'm really dead serious about it. And what is compassion for someone who keeps relapsing? What do, what is, what do we have for them? If what we have that we think is compassion is it's okay that's precisely the wrong message. If you've never heard it before and you have recently relapsed or are planning to, 
shortly. Let me be the first, if I am the first. I hope I'm not. It's not okay. If you want to act out, go ahead, be my guest. But what are you doing here? We're, for, we're the group for people who stop doing that. And that's real compassion. Real compassion for my son with the car is to say, you're grounded again for six months because I do love you. And, we, and it makes sense when I use that example, but in the group it doesn't. We're so afraid of hurting somebody's feelings when sometimes precisely what people need is for their feelings to be hurt. Not harmed. Harm and hurt are not the same thing. They can be, but sometimes hurt is just that. It's just a feeling. And sometimes we have to be willing to hurt somebody's feelings, to tell them what somebody sooner or later has to tell them, which is this is the group for people who want to get sober, it's the group for people who want to stay sober, and it's the group for people who want to help other people get sober. And I didn't make this up. It's called the first tradition and the fifth tradition. It's called unity with a spiritual entity with a primary purpose, and that's sobriety yesterday, sobriety today, sobriety tomorrow, sobriety for you, 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 me, and everybody else. That doesn't mean it's going to be perfectly lived out. But if we're not shooting to live it out as well as we can, then we will remain just a meeting. A nice collection of individuals where we, some of us get sort of better and some of us don't. And we like each other. We spend an ordinance amount of time together. And all we do is share our most recent story on the edge of the cliff. What if we just all got away from the cliff? What if we didn't spend our life on the edge of the cliff? What if we got a life that was so good over time, which is why I try to tell you what it's like for me now. What if we got a life that was so good that we said, the hell with the cliff. And when we saw other people moving toward the cliff, we said, no, no, that's not okay. Come over here with me away from the cliff. And now we have in our group, we have Mike H. I was telling uh, Joseph, uh, Mike H., Gave a lead last night at our meeting. I think he's got 15, 16 years. I don't remember the exact number. His wife last year was diagnosed with cancer. And he's gone through a hellish year. He had to leave his job after a number of years. And he gave this beautiful lead last night. And, and a lot of what he talked about was as hard as the year has been. And his wife, by the way, at least for now, is in remission. Thank God. It's a great, great story. Great story. But, but a lot of what he talked about was his gratitude to his group. His gratitude to his group for all the love and support he got to get through that year sober. In other words, his whole focus in his lead wasn't about, well, I've been sober 18 years, and I spent the last 17 and a half of them standing on a cliff wondering whether to jump off or not, or fall off or not. Because, you know, if you stand there long enough trying to figure out whether to jump off or not, eventually the wind's going to get you, you're going to fall off anyway. So this is what it means to develop a culture of sobriety. To care, it's ultimately founded on a, on, a, on a deep love that when we come in, we might have some vague concept of, but we just don't understand it because we've been drunk so long we've forgotten what real love is. We think real love is people catering to our every wish. That has nothing to do with real love. That's self-centered, self-pity, self-entitlement, and we're all subject to it. I'm subject to it. That's why I don't bring my wife to these things. She's like, yeah, he sounds good. Let me tell you the real story after the coffee break. You know? but, but to love somebody enough, to care about somebody enough, to, 
To be there with them, yes, but to be there with them and invite them into something better and invite them into something deeper. Um, that's why at the beginning I said, turn your cell phones off because that, it is not, it's not intended as anything. It's just the culture we live in today. But people, literally, I, I mean, I get on the subway train in Chicago and I look around, 95% of the people are looking at their phones and if someone pulled out a gun before they knew what would happen, they'd all be dead. You know, when I was growing up, I was told, pay attention on the subway because you really would like to be there when, they, when, you, when you get to your stop. You know, nobody pays attention. I know maybe in New York they do, in Chicago, nobody knows what's going on. It's, so it's, it's not meant so much as a criticism, it's just, but, but the reality is, if you're on your cell phone during a meeting, you're not truly present. You're turning your group back into a meeting, a collection of individuals where it doesn't really matter if I'm here or not, you know, and that's wrong. It's rude. Nobody wants to say that anymore. You can't say that anymore. It's rude. It's, it's, it's insensitive. It's wrong. And somebody's got to tell you. And you, you guys elected me. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> you know, stop doing it. Because if you stop doing it, you'll be more cohesive. You'll be more united and and. and You'll, you'll either begin, or if you've already begun, you'll get better at developing yourselves as a spiritual entity with a message. Nobody walks out of our meeting on Wednesday night at St. Teresa's without a thought, and I hear it all the time when newcomers or visitors come, and it's said in different ways, but the bottom line, what they say is, wow, you guys mean business. If I really wanted to get and stay sober, boy, if I lived in Chicago and came to this meeting every week, I bet I could stay sober for the rest of my life, and it's like precisely precisely. And that's what we want to develop. Uh, we want to keep developing it. And it takes leadership. Some people say, oh, there's not supposed to be leaders in the 12-step program. No, there are supposed to be leaders. Our leaders though, are but trusted servants. They do not govern, which is another whole topic I'll say for another time, because we got a lot of governors in SA. But that's another topic for another time. But, uh, um, but there is leadership. And, and, and you have to be aware of bleeding deaconism, which, you know, I have been subjected to sometimes. I mean, I have, you know, failed in that regard at times where I get on my high horse and think everybody should be my way because I'm Mike C and I've been around and blah, blah, blah. That's all crap, too. But, but there is leadership. There is a sense of there's a core of us who've been around long enough, who've been sober long enough who want this to go a certain way. We have to be careful not to be controlling and not to be jerks and all of that, but at the same time, on the other, we talked about balance beforehand. At the same time, we have to be brave enough. It takes courage, brave enough to say, hey, group, we need to do a few things differently if we're going to be stronger. And the most important of those, I think, is to stop coddling relapse, to stop treating relapse like it's just a normal part of things and oh, well, it's not. It doesn't have to be. It, 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 you'll never eliminate it because we're human, but you can you can reduce it substantially. You know, you can reduce it substantially by making it clear to people what you stand for and that you stand for sobriety. Um, other examples. Um, one of the key things. How many people in this room are sponsoring somebody else? Okay, pretty fair number. Another one of the key things in building a culture of sobriety is sponsorship. Uh, I don't know how it is here, but in Chicago, we used to feel that the sponsor-sponsor relationship was sort of this special one-on-one -on -one relationship. And, you know, um, I'll give you an example. I'll give you a couple examples. 
I had a guy say to me, you're my sponsor, right? I said, yeah. He says, that means whatever I say to you is confidential. I said, sure. He says, okay, um, that means you can't tell anybody else, right? I go, yeah, of course. And then he says, uh, I have a sexually transmitted disease. I know I have it, but if I, tell my, if I tell my wife, she'll divorce me. And if I don't have sex with her, she'll think something's up. So I am going to keep having sex with her, even though I have a sexually transmitted disease. Okay, now, I've just told this guy... Uh, yeah, yeah, it's confidential, blah, 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 blah. So now I am basically an accessory to a, both a, a literal and spiritual crime, right? And I've boxed myself in this corner, right? And all I can do is argue with this guy, and he says, basically, screw you. I'm not telling her, you know? And I says, no, really, screw her is what you're going to do. And, <laughs> and, uh, and she's probably, she's, you know, and if she dies, oh, well, at least, at least you kept your cover, Right? That's coddling the disease of sexaholism. It took us a long time to realize an individual does not sponsor another individual. A group sponsors an individual. You have one sort of point man for that who's called the sponsor. Today, if, so, if any sponsee came up to me today and says, hey, I got to tell you something, and you have to promise me not to tell anybody else, I say, stop, I don't want to hear it. My job as your sponsor is to help you. And I can only help you if I can get all the help I need. Of course, whatever you tell me, I'm not going to tell to anyone outside of the program. That's called anonymity. That's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about within the group. It's not that everybody has to know every single detail. It's that everybody has to be available to know whatever they need to know to help the sponsor help the sponsee. So today when somebody tells me something, I tell them, I am going to talk to anybody in this group or anybody in Sexaholics Anonymous who I think can help us solve this problem. I mean, I call Harvey, I call Art, I call whoever the hell I have to call from one end of this country, or world even, and say, we got a problem here. And I get calls now, honestly, almost every day of my life from out of town from somebody who's saying, I got a sponsee, what do you, how do you handle this? This is how it's supposed to work. So that if you have a problem and you're the sponsor and you don't know what to do, you can turn to that beautiful network of people in your group because it isn't just a meeting anymore. It's a group. We're all in this together. We love one another so much that we spend maybe a little less time. Not that there's anything wrong with fellowship and bullshitting and all that. That's all fine. But we spend a little less time with that and a little more time doing the real work of the 12-step program which is helping figure out what do I got to do to not just not act out today, but to live a spiritual life today. And who can help me do it? The other guys in my group, because they're doing it. And so this changed our whole concept of sponsorship. So much so that recently we noticed uh, a few guys in the two to three year range, like four or five of them relapsed within like three months. So at our business meeting, I just raised my hand and I said, we got a problem here. I don't know what the problem is, but we need to do something. Uh, let's kick it around. And, and, you know, we realized we hadn't taken a group inventory in a long time. And the way you take a group inventory, by the way, is you take this book, Practical Guidelines for Group Recovery, and for about four weeks during your regular meeting time, instead of your usual shares, you read each paragraph of this and comment on it and listen to each other. And, fi and, and out of that, some, some sense of what the group's doing well and what the group could do better comes. So we're starting next week, the next three weeks, we're doing a group inventory. We haven't probably done one in 10 years, but it's time. A few years ago, we had a similar problem. We had a bunch of guys with five or six years relapse. 
we decided to just have an open forum on a Saturday morning for sponsors only. That, of course, hurt people who weren't sponsors' feelings. So we said, well, if you want to come too, you can, but it's really for sponsors. Okay? So, so we had this open forum, and we just started talking, and we realized something. I guess it should have been obvious, but we just missed it. And here's what it was. Let's say, i got to pick on some other people. Let's say I'm sponsoring this guy and this guy. What's your name? Michelet. Michelet. And yours? Mercy. <laughs> Let's say Michelet is sober five years and mushy. Mushy. All right. Moses. 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 Mushy. Okay. Close. Moses. 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 I says, on the internet doing what? He says, looking at pornography for a few minutes. I says, how long is a few minutes? A little while. I, I'm a math guy. I said, I want a number. Five. Five seconds? No. Five minutes? No. Five hours? Yes. I says, I says, wait a minute. That's a little time? Well, how would you define a lot of time on the internet? But my point is, I know this guy's new, and I know I got to dig. Okay, he, he, I says, uh, yeah, see me tonight at the meeting. We got, we got to talk. I hand the phone. Now you come. I would have done the names, but forget. <laughs> he calls me. He says, he's over five years now. I've been sponsoring him for four years, right? He says, I had a little lust today. I said, did you surrender? He says, yeah. I says, okay. And I hang up the phone. Unintentional. But I'm complacent about his sobriety. I trust that he's going to stay sober because I've seen him stay sober for four years. I'm not asking the questions that I'm asking the guy with two months or that I'm asking the guy I know is a chronic relapser. Um, I should be asking you the same question I'm asking you. I don't care if you've got 40 years. Because, you know, lust is an equal opportunity employer. Lust doesn't care that I have 33 years. Lust doesn't give two craps about that. Doesn't care. So we, part of developing a culture of sobriety for us was having this open forum to just say what's going on and realizing we weren't digging as deep. We weren't requiring the longer-term sponsees to be as transparent as the shorter-term sponsees. But we never would have figured it out if we didn't call the question and have the open forum. And then from that, we had a sponsorship workshop on transparency. And we talked about the importance of transparency. And what is transparency? Transparency is sharing the truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly, with a heavy focus on the bad and the ugly. Because usually that's more likely to get us drunk than the good. Although the good can get us drunk too. <coughs> My job as a recovering sexaholic is to look bad at least twice a week. One when I talk to my sponsor, and two when I talk to my group. My job is to look bad. Do you know how many people think it's the opposite? How many people in this room right now believe their job is to look good, think really long and hard about their comments before they make it, to tailor it so that it projects well to the, to the group? Especially in a close-knit kind of homogeneous community like this, God, we don't want to look bad. I don't know how it is in the Jewish community, in the Catholic community, there's only one thing that's really important. How does it look to the outsiders? 
You're more worried about some guy you've never seen before walking down the street than you are about anybody else. How does it look? My mother never complimented me in 30 years, but on the phone every day, she'd tell, tell all my aunts and everybody how great I was. Then she'd hang up, and I'd walk up kind of looking for a little more, and she'd like, get away from me. <laughs> Our job's to look bad. That's what it means to be transparent. A guy in a meeting years ago in Arizona said one of my favorite lines. He says, we're all a bunch of garbage heads. In other words, my head is filled with garbage at any point in any given day. And I got a feeling some of yours is probably too. It might be resentment garbage. It might be lust garbage. It might be my wife's, you know, this, that, or the other thing. Almost always a lie, by the way. But it's there. And, and my job is to present that garbage to the group. So this is what happened. This is another example of, of, of it. About four years ago, I got in the habit of not making calls. And maybe it was five years ago. I get, yeah, I'm getting eight to ten calls a day, and I started thinking, I'm getting so many calls, and I'm talking to members. I don't know if I ever consciously decided, but I just faded away. And then one week in the meeting, I happened to mention to a couple guys, yeah, I don't really make many calls anymore because I get so many. The next thing I know after the meeting that night, five guys sat me down, sat me in a chair, and they were having a check meeting on me. I call check meetings. I call them. I don't get them called on me. In case you haven't heard, I might see. <laughs> so they sit me down and they say, basically, we don't give a crap if you're, you know, Harvey and Roy and Jess all put together. We don't care. You are going to make two calls a day, every day, for the rest of your life, and you're not getting out of this room till you commit to it. Because you're full of crap. Okay, thank you, fellas. <laughs> And I realized that night, in a good way, not in a self-pitying way, like, oh, I can die now. This group has learned to become a group. It's still good to have me around, I still contribute, but they don't need me anymore. Because they're, they've become such a spiritual entity, so united in the first tradition, so with a purpose and a mission in the fifth tradition, that they're not intimidated by me. They saw my crap and they called me on it. And that's what it means to develop a culture of sobriety. And that was, again, transparency. Mike, you might be getting 10 calls a day, but when are you picking up the phone telling somebody what garbage is going on in your head? And believe me, it does on a daily basis. At some, not at maybe some, every once in a while I might have a non-garbage head day, but not very often. <laughs> so let me talk a little bit more about check meetings. So somewhere along the line, and it's, in the, and it's in this book, so maybe we got it from here, I don't remember, but we realize that, well, this, this relates to sponsorship. The loneliest guy in every SA meeting is the sponsor, because the sponsor, there, are, there were so many overwhelmed sponsors, it's unbelievable. I mean, this is the main calls that I get you, is always a sponsor worried about a sponsee. We are carrying in our hearts this love for guys who are struggling, but we don't know what to do. Because our only qualification to be a sponsor is that we are a pervert. That's it. <laughs> but that we have stopped acting like one a little bit longer than the guy who calls us. That's it. 
I'm not a sponsor. You didn't call me here because I'm a psychologist, because I'm a priest or a rabbi or a minister. You didn't call me here because I'm a great businessman. You didn't call me here because I'm a social worker. You called me because I'm a pervert who's been not acting like one a little longer than many of you. That's why I'm here. And, um, okay, but uh, <laughs> who the hell's out there? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, so, yeah, fine. So, so the issue, the issue is in sponsorship, it's okay. The issue is there's a loneliness because we, we are overwhelmed. We're in over our heads. And sometimes we don't know what to do. And so we started having a thing where only a sponsor can call a check meeting. What is that? Maybe, and it's usually not because somebody relapsed. 99% of the time, if your sponsor just relapsed, don't call a check meeting. He is not ready for a check meeting. He's, not, he's drunk. Okay? But maybe you've got a guy who's staying sober, but there's a problem in the sponsor-sponsee relationship. Maybe you're trying to get him to work the steps and you feel like he's dogging it. Maybe he's got a problem in his marriage and it's just bigger than you know how to handle. Who knows what it is? So let's say I'm sponsoring this guy and we bumped into a problem and I don't know what to do with it. I say to him, you know what I'd like to do is I'd like to call a check meeting. And I'm going to ask three or four of our long-term members to sit in after the meeting next week for half an hour. Okay, fine. I ask three or four sober guys. After the regular meeting, a little fellowship, everybody leaves. There's five guys left. We sit around. We say the serenity prayer. Someone chairs the meeting. Not the sponsor. Somebody else chairs it because the sponsor's there to get help for him. And the chairman just says to the sponsor, so I guess that in case that would be me, hey, what's going on with this guy? And I said, well, he's staying sober. But I've asked him to bring in some step forward three straight weeks. The first week, you know, the wife and the kids, I thought, okay, yeah, that can happen. The next week, he's at a baseball game. Hey, I love baseball, too, so I let it slide. But now it's the third week, and his excuse this week, I don't know. I just feel like I'm, I'm working harder than he is. You ever have that feeling? I'm working harder than my sponsee is? That's a bad sign. So, so I just need some help. And then the chairman says to the sponsee, you got anything to add briefly? We only want to hear from the sponsee briefly. Sponsor can talk as long as he wants. Sponsee briefly. Don't mix up the order. If you do, you're back to a meeting, not a group. Sponsee speaks briefly. And then the three or four other guys there, just go around the room and give feedback. Well, here's what I sense, here's what I sense, here's what I sense, here's what I sense. At the end, you go back to the sponsor. And you want to make any final comments? Yeah, here's what I picked up on. Go back to the sponsee briefly. Say the serenity prayer, go home. That process has totally transformed our meeting into a group. Because what it's done is it's taken the burden off the shoulders of sponsors and put it where it belongs, which is on the shoulders of sponsees. There's so many of us who are caretakers, and it's not our job. Our job is not to take care of the sponsee, it's to put up the mirror to the sponsee. It's to walk with the sponsee. That's the love part. You know, love is support and challenge. That's it. That, what is love? It's support and it's challenge. Okay, most of us are good at the support part and shitty at the challenge part. So really this talk is just say, hey, get some balance, get some challenge along with your support. That's it. And the check meeting is a wonderful way to do that. Because what invariably happens at a check meeting is at the end of it, if you look at the sponsee, one of two things you will see in his body language. 
I always say his, and we're all his here, but obviously this applies to women members as well. But anyway, you will see either this, broken and contrite spirit, the spirit of the first step, like Roy talks about in the book. In other words, whatever happened in that meeting broke through, and that sponsee can see that and can feel the relief himself, like, I got the help I needed, we got through to this guy, we can continue. <clears throat> or you see something like this, which is, you guys, thanks. And they, the words might all be beautiful. The words are almost always beautiful. Thanks so much. I learned so much from this. And you can tell that he really wants to kill you. <laughs> this is great. Because the sponsor then realizes, and I have to get a different guy, because I usually use Jesus, and it might not work. <laughs> <laughs> Go, Go for it. I'll just, stick, I'll just stick with it. I'll just stick with it. So, so what we say in that situation, if the guy's like, this is... Hey, the sponsor could be Jesus Christ, and you couldn't help this guy get sober. He's not ready. Okay? So, this is, a, this is another uh, thing. Another thing about sponsors and sponsees, and it's all along the same line. Uh, if you have a sponsee who is relapsing frequently, now, I'm not talking about a newcomer. Not that a newcomer should be relapsing frequently, but I realize it takes a while for people to get on their feet. Some people get it right away. might take some people one or two stabs at it. Okay, but beyond a newcomer, if you've got a long-term member that you're sponsoring and that person is relapsing on a regular basis, you don't know it yet because you're calling yourself the sponsor He's calling you his sponsor, and the group sees you as his sponsor, but you're not his sponsor. Each and every time he relapses, he has fired you. Unless you're telling him, which I've never heard in 33 years, unless you're telling him, okay, here's my direction for the next week. I want you to go out and relapse. I want you to get drunk on lust. And the reason is, then you can make me miserable. I can be depressed. I can be overwhelmed. I can feel responsible for your recovery again. And the group can be miserable again because you failed again. This is what I want you to do. If you're doing that, then it's your fault. But if you're not, every single relapse of every single sponsor you've ever had is 0% your fault. Get over your sense of over-responsibility because it ain't your fault because as soon as that person relapses, you don't know it yet, you're not sponsoring them. So what we do in our group is we stop pretending. We stopped pretending with our chronic relapsers. And I would suggest you do it too. And this is very controversial because people aren't used to, they're used to the support. They're not used to the challenge. People say it's unloving. It's the most loving thing in the world. If I'm sponsoring this guy, he's been around, let's say, three, four years. Three months relapse, two months relapse, one month relapse. Oops, that relapsed three days, four days. Oh, now he's back on for three months. And all we ever do is talk about the cliff and how, did you stay on this side of the cliff today or did you fall off? Oh, you fell off today. Wonderful. See you tomorrow. You know, um, if that's all you ever do, the sponsor's wasting your time. There might be somebody in your group who actually wants to get and stay sober. You're not helping him. Why? Because you think you're helping this guy who you're not helping either because he's not ready to be helped. Nothing against him, nothing against you. Not trying to hurt anybody's feelings and just telling you the truth. He is not ready to be helped. And you could be Jesus or whoever your guy is, and it wouldn't make any difference. It, wouldn't, it would make absolutely no difference. So, 
That's another thing that's very, very important. So when we say to chronic relapsers, now when they relapse, they come up and say, would you help me get a sponsor? I says, come back to me when you have 30 days of sobriety. There's no magic to 30 days. You could say 60 days. You could say a month. You could say six years. It doesn't matter. The point is, show me some sign. You know how to get and stay sober for 30 days. By my count, you've done it 12 times in the last seven years. Therefore, get 30 days and come back and let me know what's different. We have guys who've literally burned through 10 and 11 sponsors, and then they want another one. It's like glutton for punishment. It's like, for what? And the truth is, you're not, if, you, if you have a chronic relapse, you're not sponsoring him, because you're not telling him to go out and relapse and make you and the group miserable. What you're probably doing is feeling sorry for him, which is the last thing that he needs. If you really love him and you really have compassion for him, don't feel sorry for him. Don't feel sorry for them. There are some diseases worth feeling sorry for people about. This isn't one of them because we have a program of recovery for those who really want it. There is recovery. It's a terrible disease. Sorry you got it. Okay, for three seconds I'm sorry, but guess what? Now I'm done being sorry because you're here and we can recover from it. Same thing, alcohol, all these isms. There's, there's treatment. There's 12 steps. It's wonderful. So I don't feel sorry for you. If, you, if you're having trouble staying sober, I'm willing to help you. I'm willing to help you if you're willing to be helped. But a lot of people want to be coddled. They don't want to be helped. And so the sooner a, a collection of people in a meeting stop coddling relapse by stop sponsoring relapsers, because you're not sponsoring relapsers, the more united your group will become. And ironically, some of those chronic relapsers will stop chronically relapsing because they will get the message Oh, this is not really accepted here. No one's going to kick you out, but like, you know, I'm on the outside looking in. Instead of we're so busy trying to make you feel like you're still on the inside, even though you're not sober. Why would we want you to be on the inside feeling like you're on the inside if you're not sober? Now, I know for some people this is really tough, and I know it sounds mean. I don't think it is. You'll have to decide for yourselves. I mean, I go home and you get to say, well, we liked this, we didn't like this, and that was great, and this guy was full of crap about this, whatever. But let it sink in for a while. Talk about it. Think about it, because there's a lot to it. And, and, and the results that we've had is we do still have a few chronic relapsers, but a lot less than we used to, because we started caring enough about these guys to say to them, look, let's, let's call what it is it is. If you're not ready yet, you know, years and years ago, I don't remember who the guy was or where he was from, but it was at an international convention. And this guy came up to me and he did, you know, he just wasn't staying sober and he'd been around forever. And um, I don't remember his exact problem. I'm sure it's on a tape somewhere, but he had a terrible situation in his family life. And I don't remember exactly what it was. But I, I mean, I felt... I did feel sorry for this guy because of what had happened. I don't know if his wife had died or his child had died, but it was serious, you know. And he said, I just can't get over it. And, and for some reason, I can't stay sober. And I said to the guy, you know, I wouldn't blame you if you acted out from now to the day you died, twice a day, every day, because I don't know if I could carry the kind of pain you're carrying. And if that's what you need to medicate yourself, I don't judge you. I got nothing against you, and I, I totally understand it. I might do the same thing myself. Then I stopped for a second, took a deep breath, and said, 
But if you want to change your way of life, I got 12 steps here that can help you stay sober. And he called me, or maybe I ran into another convention, like two or three years later, and he said, I never acted out again because you gave me permission. You gave me permission. You gave me permission to act out if I wanted to. You, you, know, you didn't make me feel like this was a moral crisis. I have to do this to be good and all that crap. This, this isn't about good or bad. This is about sick or well. We are sick. Do we want to stay that way or don't we? In his case, I thought he had a good reason for wanting to stay sick. Who would want to face that? But he finally decided that he did. And he turned his life around. But, you know, I wasn't, I, I, I felt sorry for his situation, but not for his relapses. And he picked that up. My brother, who I told you about, who really started us in Chicago, he left for a while, but he's been back, and he just celebrated 20 years of sobriety. And I'll tell you a little bit about this, but it's going to be a little hard, but how am I doing on my time here? Oh, a little after nine. Yeah, well, we got, we got a couple more stories, and then we'll go to Q&A. So, so my brother's wife is named Evelyn. Now, Evelyn was very important in our family because she was Polish and almost everybody else was Irish. And I mean, she's American. She's Polish-American and we were Irish-American. And um, that meant we had someone in the family who could cook. <laughs> <laughs> she made tacos. She made all this Polish food, galumpies and all this stuff. And oh my God, it was awesome. And Evelyn was, in many ways, a good friend of mine, but Evelyn was a little scary, you know? Um, because when you walked into my brother's house, Evelyn would not let you wear shoes in her house. And I hate taking my shoes off. I hate it. I would try to remember to bring, like, slippers, and then I'd take my shoes off and put slippers on. But if I didn't, I would just try to get away with wearing shoes in her house. And she'd see me and say, get those shoes off! And I'd go running like a three-year-old kid back to the mat at the door and take my shoes off, you know, and... Anyways, um, she wouldn't be very happy with me now. Evelyn died in December of 2012, about six years ago. And she died of cancer. And her cancer came and left. I don't remember, at least, I want to say, and I might be a little off here, but I want to say at least four times over the course of maybe seven or eight years. In other words, she, she'd get it, be in remission, have a couple of good years, remission, have a good year, remission. This went on and on and on. And... Um, and uh, my brother would come to the meeting every week and he would talk about, he would be real. He would talk about what was going on. He would talk about the beautiful things that would happen because he learned to do things I still can't do. He and his wife would sit and look out a hotel window when they go out of town when she couldn't move around much anymore for like four hours and just look at things and enjoy them. Imagine four hours, no phones on, not doing anything, nobody calling in, just literally left with your spouse. Terrifying, but beautiful if you can pull it off. <laughs> and, and, he, and he could pull it off, and she could pull it off. And he, 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 even though very few of our members had met Evelyn, a few had, everybody knew her. And then at the end, she was dying, and he'd come every week, and he would explicitly talk about what was going on. And it was so powerful and so tender and so difficult. And, uh, and then she died. And then for the next many, many months, even year plus, he would talk about how he was doing with that. 
This was a guy, the love of his life, leaving him over a period of years, and him coming and sharing that with the group. So that this group now, Wednesday night St. Teresa group in Chicago, they know, at least by osmosis, how you walk with somebody who's dying, because he taught that. And he knew only by being part of this group, which allowed him to be real about what was going on in his head, which some days was very tender and beautiful, and other days was rather raw and ugly. And after Evelyn died, you could never give this tape to my brother, because I don't want him to know one thing I'm going to tell you. Maybe he does, but I hope he doesn't. My brother called me every day, I would say, for at least the next three plus years and cried. That's over a thousand days in a row. Every single day. And he would apologize to me. And I would say, why are you apologizing for me? This is the greatest privilege of my entire life. And he'd say, well, I just worry I'm, maybe I'm overwhelming you and you can't handle it. And I'd say, I can handle it. Great. And I'd hang up the phone and call somebody and say, if this guy calls me one more time, <laughs> this is the part I don't want him to know. If this guy calls me one more time and weeps into my phone, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. I can't. The, the grief is so overwhelming and so profound and so beautiful. I can't take it. I couldn't take it by myself, but I kept calling you guys and you guys kept saying, hang in there with him. Hang in there with him. You can do it. And I'd just be there for him, but then I'd have to get off the phone and let you guys be there for me. And this is a group functioning with a primary purpose. It's not just, oh, don't act out. It's get to the point where acting out is so far from your mind. Most days, yes, there's going to be those days where you're near the cliff. But what if it's one or two days a year instead of 363 days a year? And you can live a life, a life that, like Roy says, a life that's making it. And this is developing a culture of sobriety. Okay, let's have me stop and take questions. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm very confused because you didn't once mention God. And listening to your share, it sounds almost like the group is what gets people sober. And what, what was confusing is at least a lot of us are coming from a background where everyone's telling us how to live our lives. And the way it sounded like is when I see a friend who's struggling, when I see another member who's struggling, we tell them what to do. And we get them sober. And I know that no one could get me sober. And it was only through working the steps and developing a relationship with a high power that got me sober. And I didn't hear that piece at all in what you were sharing. And the idea of controlling and taking charge of somebody else is very incongruous with the idea of live and let live, I can't control, the serenity prayer, and all of that. That's very confusing, at least for me personally. Okay. Well, the first part about not hearing about the steps in God, you blame that on Zeb. <laughs> um, because <laughs> at the break he says, I know you're going to do steps and then traditions, but I want you to do traditions and then steps. So it's all Zeb's fault. But anyway, um, yeah, I kind of hear what you're saying, but I kind of don't. I mean, I'm, nothing that, in my own mind, nothing that I said had anything to do with control and anything to do with telling people what to do. Um, 
I'm not very glib in talking about God. I mean, I studied for 10 years to be a Catholic priest, so obviously I believe in God. Um, and I've even come to realize he believes in me. That took a little longer. Um, but I'm not very glib in talking about God because I find many people, including people in the program, sometimes especially people in the program, are very glib in talking about God as if they know, know the mind of God. I don't know the mind of God. Uh, my own 11-step, uh, you know, my own seeking through prayer and meditation for God's will for me, the knowledge of His will and the power carried out, focuses mostly on uh, uh, the knowledge of God's will for me. What's clear to me is what God does not want me to do. That's become clear to me in my program. And I can tell you what they are. And I'm absolutely certain of this. I think there's 0% chance that if I ever meet God face to face, I'll be wrong on any of these. It's possible, but I just don't think so. God doesn't want me to drink. Doesn't want me to take drugs. Doesn't want me to lust. Doesn't want me to act out. Doesn't ever want me to open my mouth when I'm angry. Especially with my wife. That I know. That's God's will for me, what I'm not supposed to do. And I know that if I do not do the things he doesn't want me to do, I'm not sure to get my knots right here, but if I, if I don't do those things, then what he does want me to do will eventually become clear to me in the working of the program with the group. So I absolutely think uh, ultimately the author of any one of our sobrieties is a combination of God and ourselves. I mean, I'm all, the person ultimately responsible for whether I stay sober or not today is me. And the person who must give me that power is God. But where that becomes manifest, in, in my own opinion, most, most, not exclusively, but mostly, is through my group. God speaking through my group. I don't talk about it much, and, and it's a good critique. Maybe I should talk about it more. But I'm always afraid to be glib, like going around saying, oh, I know exactly what God wants. I, I, I don't know what God wants. I don't even know what he looks like. But I got some ideas, though, but you might disagree with them. But anyway. <laughs> um, but but good, very good point. Yeah. Um, until we're starting the celebration meeting over here in this location, we had one in a different location. Uh, someone with over 10 years of sobriety brought up a question, which was a very, very, very conflicting question. I'd like to hear your, obviously, typical conscience. Sure. For many years, we had a celebration meeting on Saturday night. First, I'm sorry, I have to interrupt. What, do you, what, is, a, what is a celebration okay. meeting? Whoever celebrated that month, they, they so if it's, let's say, 30 days, the person who celebrates talks for three minutes how he did Okay. And if a person has over a year and more, then the sponsor or someone close to him introduces him for five minutes. And then the sponsee or the person okay. celebrating. Okay, go ahead. Now, what happened was, very often, people who were chronically, people who relapsed a lot, it would end up being that every 30, between the six-month period, there were a lot of times that people with 30 days that were, so this person came to a Saturday night meeting, and he brought up to the intention as a group conscience that, okay, you know, we can celebrate. It is a celebration, even if someone's constantly, I a lot of relapses, it's definitely a celebration, but why are we letting that person talk for three minutes every three months? You're basically allowing, which really has to do with your topic, yep. he felt that was allowing relapse, and it's not getting the message. So the question to you is, it's obviously a group conscious question, sure. because we just started this week, this month was the first time, 
I was going to ask if you brought it up, but I want to hear what you have to say. What do you feel about that? Is that a, the first 30 days? Yeah, but the next, should there be such a concept that after you have 30 days one time, maybe announce the name, but we sh there shouldn't be the sharing your ESH when there are guys who have long-term sobriety and they're not sharing it until they have a year, whatever, are we, that's allowing. I think you get my question. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll answer you indirectly and then directly. So indirectly, I'll just share what we do in our group as far as anniversaries. Um, when you have four years of sobriety, four years, you are allowed to give a lead on your anniversary. Before that, meaning normally we read from the white book the 12 steps every week, but if someone has an anniversary of four years or more, we suspend the reading for one week, and that person shares their experience, strength, and hope on their anniversary. So four years, five years, six years, but before four years, no. And some of that's just a function of we have 50 people, and if we did it at one, two, and three years, we'd never get to the book. So it doesn't necessarily have to be four years, but the point is we set a, a reasonable length of sobriety to shoot for to be able to share. Um, so that's just what we do. And the rest of the time, if someone has 30 days for the fifth time that year, when we go around the room, we do say any anniversaries of 30 days or more, up to a year and then a year after that. And so they might raise their hand and say, I have 30 days again, and we might clap, but they're not talking. Um, so your question, I think, is do I think it's sort of coddling relapse to allow the chronic relapsers to be sharing at the celebration meeting? Yes, I do. I think it's a terrible idea. You're, you're reinforcing. You know, I, for, for one thing, I don't think there's really much to celebrate there. It's better that he has 30 days than that he didn't. But if it's likely based on past performance that this is going to be a short-term thing, then I'd want to wait a lot longer before I celebrated that again. Because to be honest, the guy might just be... You know, he might be trying to be training for public speaking, and he figures if I relapse every month, I get to talk more. Now, I'm kind of kidding, but I'm kind of not, because functionally, functionally what the group is saying is if you want to talk more, relapse more. And that's the kind of thing that you don't think of it that way, but that's the kind of thing we started learning years ago about, you know, don't let the guy who relapsed said the Lord's Prayer. It's the same kind of thing. Until you start thinking, until you can almost step out. When you're in it, you don't see it. But until you can almost step out of it, you say, wait a minute. We're having the same guy talk every month who relapses every month? We're reinforcing his relapses. Of course you are. Absolutely. So, so then what happens if you're leading that meeting and most of the people coming are every three months? Let's say you're, you are one person there who has a lot of years and a, most, you always have group conscious and you go after the majority. But the majority are people who are doing that, so how do you do the meeting? Okay, so now you're, now you're into a whole other question, which is how do you take a group conscience? So let me speak to that, because that's another part of developing, switching from a meeting to a group, is how you do a group conscience. And a group conscience is just that. It's a group, it's, a, it's the conscience, think of the word, it's the conscience of the group. It's more than just an election, or at least it should be. Yes, at the end of the day, if the best you can get to is a majority vote, that's better than nothing, but you want that to happen very rarely. Almost every group conscience a true group takes should be unanimous or close to it. What Roy used to talk about, the term he would use is substantial unanimity. You might not have complete unanimity, but you substantially have a group conscience as the group is behind this. And to be honest, 11 to 9 isn't much substantial unanimity. So in our group, we have business meetings scheduled once a month. And a lot of months they don't even happen because there's no business. And that's a good sign. Maybe not at the beginning, but as you become more and more of a group, 
you have less and less of a need. Most of the time, there will be exceptions for, for business meetings. But early on, you have a lot of need if you're becoming a group for business meetings because you've got a lot of things you need to change. So you do the business meeting before the regular meeting, not after. That's very important. Why? Because if you do it before, less people will come, and that's what you want. <laughs> you want less people to come. Why? They said, oh, this is undemocratic. No, it's just good democratic. What do I mean by that? Some people think, some people think politics and program never can mix. Nonsense. There's certain places where they shouldn't, but a good group exercises its political will in the service of the first and fifth traditions. I'm not saying those are the only two, but those are the two main ones I focus on. In the service of becoming a spiritual entity with the message of sobriety and in the service of unity. Okay, So you want to have it before because generally then the people who are sober longer, who are more committed, are more likely to be there. And if other people want to be there, fine. But if people who are newer or more importantly chronic relapses are less likely to show up, that's good. It's okay. So that's number one. You have it before. Number two, 25 minutes maximum for any business meeting. Why? I'm going to give you a sentence that, except for I did kind of like stumbling forward too. Thank you. He liked that one. Uh, except for that, this will be my favorite sentence of the night. Here we go. Urgency is the enemy of recovery. We're sexaholics. We think everything is urgent. This must be decided now usually means it absolutely must not be decided now because if it is decided now, there's going to be a lot of anger, there's going to be a close vote, there's going to be screaming and yelling. Who needs it? Nobody. So 25 minutes. So our regular meeting starts at 7.30 on Wednesday. Our business meeting once a month is 7 to 7.25. At 7.25, regardless of what's happening, the chair says, Meeting adjourned till next month because there's nothing we're fighting about now that we can't fight about next month. <laughs> you know, this is not a nuclear bomb about to go off. This is, do we need to turn the air conditioning to 72 or 70? <laughs> or 68? Or whatever. Um, so if you have a sense that nothing's urgent, if you have it before, if you limit the time, these are called boundaries. You're setting boundaries to create a safe environment to have a healthy discussion. Here's the next part. Unless there's clear, almost unanimous, unless it's something so obvious that everybody's behind, the business meeting never votes on anything the first time something comes up. There's two reasons for that. There's the stated reason, which has some truth to it, and there's the real reason. The stated reason is we want more people to have time to think and discuss and come back next month and all that. It's lovely. The real reason is me and the other old-timers who are absolutely committed to the first and fifth tradition, which is in a way about God, by the way, because it's about becoming a spiritual entity. It's all, it's all ultimately about what God wants of us. Okay, What we then have a chance to do over the course of the next month is figure out, do we want this proposal? And if we do, let's line up enough people so we know by the time the next business meeting starts, We've already won the vote because we know there's only 50 people in the group. We've got 32 on our side at minimum, and they've all committed to come. It's the greatest use of politics in the history of the world because it's in the service of unity and sobriety. Um, so a lot of, you know, I was at a business meeting once. It was in another fellowship, but a, a, a group, a so-called group conscience. Now, if you're old enough, and I don't know how many of you are, but in the early days of another fellowship that has something to do with beverages, 
The great thing was when you got there, you never had to drink again. The bad news was after each meeting, you wondered if you would die of cancer because everybody was chain smoking. So you'd walk into a meeting, you'd come out and have to buy a new set of clothes. I'm exaggerating, but it was, you know, that was, that's how it was. But then, you know, 90s and into the early 2000s, all the anti-smoking, blah, blah, blah. So all these meetings started voting to be non-smoking meetings. And then eventually, at least in Illinois, you had no choice and it was, became law. You had to be non-smoking. But in those early days, this one meeting had become a non-smoking meeting for months. And one day, in the middle of somebody's league, person raised their hand and said, I need a cigarette. I want to brew conscience to change this into a smoking meeting. And everybody felt sorry for him and said, okay. And he lit up and he smoked. And then the next day, everybody got there and voted it back to a non-smoking meeting. <laughs> I guess, but I don't really think that was a group conscience. That was somebody holding the group con hostage. And the, and the group allowed it, which they probably shouldn't have, but whatever. Okay. Um, that's not a group conscience. So my point is, learn, find a way to take a group conscience that maximizes the long-term member sobriety's ability to have the time and space to figure out how to best, not control, but guide the group uh, toward unity and toward sobriety. Okay. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, you, know, you mentioned a lot about the, the, the challenge part of love and the, you know, placing a primacy on the message of staying sober in the, in the group. Something that, that, you know, that you know, I have difficulty with is that fear of is that developing a hierarchy of like better than and worse than and, you know, the guy is so famous, he's the more important person in the group and and this is something that, you know, I, on my way here, when I call my spouse, he said, Mike's a humble guy. He said, open me. The second I think someone's talking down to me, I shut down. You know, the, you know so how do I, you know, how do I ensure that I don't, we, we don't develop this, like, hierarchy of more important, less important, um, and keep real compassion, not, not just, you know, judgmentalism. Yeah, it's a great question. Whoops, sorry. Um, so a few things there. One is our own personal thing which is not all of us, but many of us, when we come into program, we don't like authority, you know. Uh, Catholics tend to be both the most rebellious, Irish Catholic, the most rebellious, yet also most loyal, like in terms of like Pope and that kind of Catholic stuff. Like, we like to argue with the Pope, but God, we want him to like us, you know what I mean? So there's all these dynamics around authority. I don't know what the Jewish dynamics are, but similar, similar okay, works, okay, whatever, you know. Um, um, so, so part of it is just part of our own spiritual journey is learning when that, when that, that button, like it's good that you talk to your sponsor on the way down because you, on some level you, you knew like, well, I might be spoiling for a fight here. I got to get myself in fit spiritual condition. You know what I'm saying? So that's awesome because part of it's just our own stuff we bring to it that we have to deal with. In terms of the group itself though, I think the example I gave of my group sitting me down in a check meeting and telling me I was full of crap and I needed to make two phone calls a day is your evidence, at least from St. Teresa's, we don't have that problem. Everybody knows that it's over 33 years. They know I go around the world. They're proud of it. They're, they're supportive of me. And, and, but they're not particularly the long-term members. They're not intimidated by me, in part because they know I come every week and I lead with my weakness. I tell them what's going on. I give them the garbage in my head. I, I don't want to be thought of as some guru, as I'm not. 
At the same time, I don't want to be falsely humble and pretend like I don't have 33 years, I haven't learned anything, I don't have anything to say, because if that was the case, then when you called me to come out, I'd have to say, oh no, I'm too humbled, I don't have... That's, that's BS too. So there's a balance for me, there's a balance for you as, as a guy who's newer, listening to a guy like me, and we just have to work it out. Um, um, I don't... The thing about the challenges, people, when they hear about it, they sort of get it, like, yeah, there's some truth to that, but there's resistance to it. And some of that is, we're just so used to thinking of support equals love, challenge equals something else. And my point is, in many cases, and it depends, but in talking about developing a group, a lot of what you're dealing with is trying to get more people to buy into long-term sobriety, and that involves a lot of challenge. My point is, challenge is love in that case. It, does it have to be done well? Yes. Can it be done poorly? Yes. Have I ever done it poorly? Absolutely. I rarely do anymore, but in the early years, I was pretty rough around the edges. And um, I, I, I did some things that were probably the right thing in the wrong way. And people like you taught me because people would challenge me and say, hey, who the hell do you think you are? It's good. Your ideas are good and it's great you have all this time, but stop acting like an asshole. I shouldn't say that on tape, sorry. But... Um, but <laughs> I want that deleted. But anyway, but anyways, um, uh, so I, I just think we, we, if we all, if the group truly becomes a group, then that's your insurance against that because then God is working through everybody to feel safe that the, we all know this important challenge. It isn't about judgment. It isn't about a hierarchy. I'll give you another example. When we were first trying to move from a meeting to a group, Roy or somebody somewhere had this idea that we should go, when the sharing time comes, you should go around the circle twice. The first time, only those with 30 days or more sobriety. The second time, everybody else. So when I first proposed this, this was in the early days of us becoming a group. I didn't know how to do group conscience yet or anything. It was a massive fight. And the people against the idea were saying exactly that. You're going to create a two-tiered system. You're going to shame the people who don't have 30 days of sobriety. On and on and on and on. And the other side, which included me, said, well... That's not our intention. Our intention is to say, let's hear all the sober people first because the meeting is here for sobriety. Everybody gets the same time. We have a, we have a timer, which I'll go into in a minute, but at, the sober people don't get any more time than the non-sober people, but they do go first. It's very controversial when you start any kind of change because even if your meeting's bad, which it probably isn't, but let's say it's really bad, it's still a comfort zone for people. Or it's pretty good, but it could be better, but it's still a comfort zone for people. Wherever you are in that continuum, nobody wants anything to change. But if you're sitting around and there's a lot of people coming in who aren't getting and staying sober consistently over time, something needs to change. And somebody has to call that, and whoever does will be considered sort of a hot shot or a egotist. Or, it's just going to happen. Believe me, I've been called so many things, it's unbelievable. You know? And at times they've been true, but overall they have not been. Um, let me talk about, I'll get to the question, but let me talk about one other piece of that, which is the timing. So in our meeting, we have, like I said, 50, 60 people. So by the time we read the chapter and get through everything, now it's time for sharing. There's usually, on average, 30 seconds per person to share. And when we first started timing that, that was another massive controversy. I mean massive. You're taking away my individuality. Precisely! Uh, <laughs> no, you're, you're doing this, you're doing but, but it was like, if you don't do that, if you don't time your shares, 
what will happen, particularly if you don't go around the room. So, so the ideal is you time the shares and you go around the room. The next best is at least you're going around the room, but you're not timing the shares. But if you just do a show of hands, not this could never happen, I'm sure, in a, in a community like this here in Lakewood. I know this. But in Chicago, we got guys, you know, the same people saying the same thing every week and taking up 10 minutes. You know, you come to a meeting, there's 40 guys, there's three guys who take up 35, 40% of the sharing time, and there's 37 guys who resent them, and nobody talks about it. And we're talking about the whole point is to get the garbage out of your head. The meeting's creating even more garbage, and nobody's dealing with it because we want to be nice and supportive. And the meeting falls apart eventually because eventually you're just not going to go here. As great as you are, they don't want to hear you for 10 minutes every week for the next six months, so they go home. So what we found out, now there is a limit to this, because you know, if you get down to 10 seconds, you barely open your mouth and you, you know, you're done. But what we found, to our surprise, was the shorter each person has to share, the better the shares. Because what are you really there to say? What I'm struggling with that's keeping me from getting better, what am I going to do about it? I'm struggling with resentment. I'm going to talk to my sponsor about doing a four-step or a mini ten-step or whatever. You know, I'm struggling with God, but I'm meeting with my sponsor tomorrow to strengthen my 11th step. I'm struggling with whatever. You know, today we're on step uh, seven. I don't really know how to work step seven. I don't have anything else to say. Five guys are going to come up to that guy after the meeting and talk about, well, here's what I did on step seven. What we don't need to hear is a 10-minute blow-by-blow of your latest relapse, your latest marital uh, fight, which sounds suspiciously like the one from last week, <laughs> four weeks ago. We kind of know when you say this, she does that. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, oh, I'm taking a nap. Did he get to the part yet where he tells her to F off? <laughs> there's, you know, there's a thing in here that talks about almost everything I'm telling you, you can find in here, by the way, in case you think I'm making it up. But let me, let me, uh, there's, there's a great line in here somewhere. Anyway, the, the point of all this is time your meetings. Everybody gets the same amount of time. Don't worry about it. Someone said, I have less, I go to the, I go to a meeting that I know has, someone came up to me break. I go to a meeting that I know has less sobriety because I get more time to share, but I know the more sober members are at the other meeting. What should I do? I said, go to the meeting with the sober members. He said, I'll get less time to share, and I don't remember what I said. But the point I was trying to make is, who cares? That's not important. What's important is to be soaking up sobriety. It's not that sharing's not important. That's what you have a sponsor for. That's what you have fellowship for. But in the meeting, sharing's important too. But focus on whatever step you're talking about that day. Um, so let, but let me, I'm going to see if I can find this thing. Okay, yeah, so create a meeting that will establish the priority of solution over problem. The participation meeting format often has the effect of encouraging members to be fascinated by the, their own experiences and the workings of their own minds. And I don't know about you, but I find myself relentlessly fascinated. In fact, when we come in, our stories, our minds, and our feelings are a jumbled mess that needs ordering and direction. God makes his ordering and direction possible. Instead of processing every lust experience that they have, newcomers need to hear the solution often. God, in and through the working of the steps, they need to be encouraged to focus only on that 
It's not necessary to take three to five years to overcome bouts of lust that lead to acting out or near slips. It's not necessary to have a history of chronic slipping. What works is to build the kind of meetings that surround us with sober people where continuing sobriety is the norm, not the exception. Groups needing recovery need to break through the impasse when, when there isn't enough sobriety to overcome insobriety. The aim is to establish a haven for attraction rather than promotion, where we are determined to have the kind of personal sobriety and group recovery that produce strong meetings which perpetuate more of the same. I guess I should have just sent you this in the mail. But anyway, that's kind of that's where I'm going with that. Uh, yes, sir. So uh, just to be clear about what you're saying, do you think that we should, we, right now we're going to have a meeting is um, the one who just shared picks the next person to share. I think we should change that. To, uh, Absolutely. I think that's, a, I, no offense, but I think that's a disaster because if I wanted to, I could lead off every week and make sure you're second and you could, I'm not saying you would stoop to such terrible things. It's like groups that split off. Some groups that have, you know, a lot of people, they'll say, we'll split off into three groups. Terrible idea. Because if you're just, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, because, because here's why, here's why, here's why we don't like it. Because if you're becoming a group and if you're getting stronger, then you want everybody to participate in that. You want everybody to be there, to, because what you want, what you want them to soak up is the culture you're developing of sobriety. And if you split into three or four groups, you diminish that. Everybody doesn't hear everybody else. And if we're all sponsoring everybody else, we all need to be connected to what everybody's saying. Can you say it again? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, okay, go ahead. Yes, yes, yes. My question is: You were talking about the chronic relapsers, positive results, but you fired me, or find someone else when you have thirty days to come back. So, someone's a chronic relapser, and he comes to me and says, "Can you sponsor me?" And I'm like, "I'm not taking you on." Who's supposed to help that guy? Who's supposed to get him to that place where he's finally sponsorable? Well, our view is, and again, I'm talking about long-term, not newcomers, but our view is the getting of the 30 days is something this person has done innumerable times, that he really doesn't need much help to get the 30 days. The getting of the 30 days or 60 days or whatever you want to put on it is a way of saying to the guy, we don't want to just keep doing the same thing that hasn't been working, which is you asking someone to sponsor you, staying sober for a while, relapsing, switching sponsors, we want to break this cycle. So get 30 days. Not just, it's not just the number. It's we'll take a break from sponsoring you because none of us really are anyway. You're not staying sober. You'll take a break from the charade that you're being sponsored. And during those 30 days, you'll not only stay physically sober, you'll ask yourself a question. What's going to be different next time? And when you come back and ask me to sponsor you or many times... I can't take on many more. I got too many, but I'll help. I'll, everyone knows I'll help find one. You'll come back and say, help me find a sponsor. I'm going to say, what's going to be different this time? And hopefully, you know, you might not even really know, that, but the point is you've thought about it and you want something to be different. And then I'm going to say to you, come on, come on over here. This guy over here, he's going to take you on on a temporary basis. He's going to be your temporary sponsor. Find out if you're serious. And if you are, he'll stick with you. So there's never a sense that we abandon anybody. It's, it's really like, hey, you need a break, we need a break. Let's do something different when you come back.
Yes, sir. Do you suggest that uh, if you done that way, that the people that are sober longer should share first? And you have two rounds? Absolutely. And because, again, if you get all the sobriety at the beginning, then when you get the bad news at the end, it's not as powerful. It's not breaking up the meeting. Two good shares, one bad share. How much sobriety do you suggest? We go 30 days, but you could do whatever you want. I mean, the, the only reason we do 30 days is that that's what we read in the literature somewhere, but it, it could be 60, whatever. Yes, sir. I'm nice, that's all. Hey, Announcements or is it like personal stuff? Oh, oh. He didn't do his job, okay. Well, I'm not sure I'm understanding, but if what you're saying is that there's some service where you just text out announcements of upcoming events and stuff, that's fine. I have no problem with that. If you're if you're saying that people are texting sort of content stuff. No. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just explain for a minute. Yeah. There was a fellow that used to participate in our fellowship. He does not participate anymore. Okay. When there is an essay-related announcement, like Mike C coming or a barbecue or something like that, uh, there's someone. It's not the a meeting that does it officially, but somehow someone sends this guy a text and asks him to blast it out. He blasts it out to recipients that may or may not still be in the program. There's a lot of people okay. that get the text. They don't come to meetings anymore, but it's their way. Of feeling connected. We brought this up at a business meeting, we discussed it at a business meeting, which I attended. And uh, the issue that came up was some people felt that this is a way of keeping people feeling connected to the program by letting them get the text from this fellow. So they, even though they don't attend the meeting, but they feel, still feel connected because they know what's going on. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'd have to know more, you know, I'd have to be in the business meeting, but I mean, in terms of information sharing, I'm okay with it, but the question is, are you making it easy for someone to feel connected when in fact they're not connected? And in that sense, I would probably, my guess is I would probably have opposed it, but I don't know enough. But I'd at least, I'd at least raise that issue saying, wait, are we once again coddling people as opposed to saying, thank you for your text, here's my text back, show up at the meetings. Otherwise, talk to you soon. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, go ahead. Raphael, we're coming to that. So my question is like this. You, we have this thing, and you mentioned this a lot about talking about what's going on inside our heads, right? So we have this thing called getting card and sharing a top plate. And a lot of times we'll have a meeting that is a step meeting. It's, we read from the 12 to 12, and we're studying a step. And people will come in, sometimes people that came late, sometimes people that even came on time, 
And when it comes their time to share, they raise their hand and they share nothing to do with what the step is about or what the topic is, just sharing what's going on in their own head. Is that appropriate or is that inappropriate? Yeah, it, it's inappropriate, how do we deal with it? Yeah, it's, it's tricky because when I say you want to share the garbage in your head, what I'm talking about is surrendering it, getting rid of it, releasing it, not indulging in it. And it's hard to know sometimes, you know, until you really get to know people. What is it? If you hear the same thing from the same guy every time, he's probably just indulging it, you know. Um, most of the time, because our meeting is so big, there's not much time for that. So the, the focus is usually going to be on the, on the step. Um, so I, I, appropriate, inappropriate, I don't know. But I would say if you're on step seven, hopefully most of the comments have something to do with step seven. But after the meeting, I might need to come up and say, you know, I didn't get a, 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 that much of a chance. I, I wanted to talk about step seven. But I got to let you know, uh, I was looking in the next door neighbor's window from my window for about 30 seconds today. And, you know, I got to, I, and I'm not telling you that to tell you the story. If I stop telling you what she looked like, who, that's irrelevant. That's inappropriate. The point is, I need to get this out of my head, and I need to let you know so I stop doing it. So anytime when I'm talking about getting stuff out of my head, the point is, get it out of my head so I stop doing it, not indulge it so it's a funny story that wastes the group time, if, if that makes sense. Yes, sir. I guess it's a reflection oh, okay. on what you're saying now. I find that you have a lot of people with long-term sobriety find it very important to share all their slips and all the actions of us that they take all the time. And to me, it uh, it... It shows it's a very poor message because it shows me that no matter how much sobriety you have, you're going to have slips, and I don't think it's necessary to take major action plus. Okay, hold on, I'm lost here. If they have long term, so if they have, wait, 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 if they have long term sobriety, they shouldn't have any slips to no, share. Every now and then, like the, 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 the looking up profile, major action plus, and they feel like they have to surrender it. To me, it shows them. I don't think I have to hear that for a newcomer. I think you should hear that you don't have to take major action plus to be sober for a long time and not have slips. To me, it, and, and it's, it's, it's all about people trying to, to dump their shame on the group. I feel it, it shows a very poor message. If, someone had, if people know this writer having slips, they could share it with each other at the meeting, but why do they have to, why is it so important for them to share with everybody that they keep on having slips? Well, your definition of a slip in mine might be different for one thing. <laughs> I mean... When he was strip club, he went around the corner 25 times, and he fantasized that it was inside. Then he realized that it was very bad for him, so he went home. Okay. Okay. No, I'm saying almost going to stop. He looked at profiles for Got it. a half it's, hour. I got it now. Yes, it's right. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, again, it's a fine line. It's like, I'm sober 33 years. Sometimes I have lustful thoughts. I do need to, I have to tell somebody every single time I have a lustful thought. I might do it in a meeting, but most of the time I probably won't. But I might, and it's okay if my purpose is to surrender it. The, what's a poor message is if the same person is, is technically sober that long but is still that close to the edge, then he maybe have a lot of calendar-length sobriety, but he doesn't have a very deep sobriety. And I suspect that's really the source of your complaint. The problem isn't so much that he's sharing it in the meeting. The problem is that he's having... A, if the same person is having a lot of experiences that are technically... You know, if I'm driving to a strip club, driving around three times, not going in, but all lust-driven. And that's happening a lot in my life, and somehow I'm physically staying sober. Well, good that I'm physically staying sober, but my recovery stinks. That's what you're picking up on. But if it happens, if it happened once in 10 years, I'm not going to say big deal. I'm just going to say we're human. What I do, I, there's a club near my house. It's 
a place that I've been in, not for over 33 years though, but it's still there. And in the 33 years since I've been sober, except for like brief sort of sideways glances that I might have caught a little bit of it, I've never seen the place. Because number one, when I drive, 90% of the time I don't drive by it. But it's the way to get to the expressway. Every once in a while, if I'm in a hurry, I will, but I just won't look. But very, very rarely. And if my wife's driving, I know by instinct to close my eyes two blocks before I get there. And I just don't even have to count anymore. I know when I'm past it, and then I open my eyes again. So that's the story I would be sharing, because I'm not going to get... I don't want to be in that guy's situation. So it's a fine line. You don't want to be overly critical if somebody has, a, has what you call a major lust experience because we've all had them, or many of us, almost all of us have had them. But if the same guy's having them all the time, but he's technically sober, then that would be a place where when the group gets strong enough, you might have a check meeting with that guy and say, you know, it's great that you have 15 years, but it seems like it's very technical and, and, and it could be a lot deeper. What, what can we do to help deepen your sobriety? So, uh, yes. Yeah. I have, a, I have a question. Um, I feel like there's two schools of thought in SA. Um, I've talked to some, a lot of sober people, and I get the sense that some people think that a filter is a good idea, and some people think that it's that uh, since the big book says that we can go anywhere so long as we have a good reason to be there and we're spiritually fit, so you can go anywhere, which means that even if you have a filter, um, you're going to get around it. Uh, I spoke to people with 25 years of sobriety who think it's a good idea, and other people who think it's not a good idea. What's your opinion about that? Okay, that is my favorite question of the night because it's, <laughs> it's, it's, because, because it's easy. And here's my answer. If a filter helps you stay sober, use it. If it doesn't, don't. I don't think there's a right or a wrong. I don't think there's a right or a wrong. For some, I know some people in our group, a filters really help them. I know other guys, like you say, they get them, and then they're, they're you know, I said, why did you, whatever money it cost you to get it, now, you're, now you're, you're trying to, you know, if you're not ready to stay sober, I guess you'll find a way around the filter. But if the filter helps you stay sober, why not? Um, a, a big difference between, let's say, what we have versus what you have is you have your meeting once a week, right? right. We have every day. Oh, so. yeah, thank you. I know the question, because you told me to address it and I completely forgot. So, when I'm talking about a group and a meeting, I'm not talking about like an inner group. I'm not talking about every SA member in New York and New Jersey. When I'm, what I'm saying is your, whatever you consider to be your group. So I'm guessing, I don't know, it's probably the meetings that meet here. And maybe it's different, maybe the morning is different than the night, or maybe it's all, if it's basically the same community, then you might have two meetings a day in the morning and one meeting a day at night. You might have 15 meetings a week, but it's really one group, or maybe there's a couple different groups within that subsection. I don't know. But what I'm talking about is that, is a group of people who are committed to the same, in our case, it's just, you know, it's basically Wednesday night, although a lot of people go to Monday night and Saturday, but, but they're, de they're definitely... Our three meetings are definitely three separate meetings and three separate groups with similar but not exactly the same culture. Um, so if, if your morning meetings are basically the same people and basically doing the same thing, then that's your group. It might be 10 meetings a week, but it's one group, and it's that group that needs to work together to develop. So that, that's, yeah, I, I, I was asked to clarify that and I forgot. Yes? You spoke a little bit about culture of sobriety, and initially you spoke a little about the difference between 
SAA and SAA about defining your own definition of sobriety. As it pertains to culture of sobriety, how do we create for the culture to stay sober where everyone defines the same definition or should not be done and based on a sponsor-sponsor relationship of how we define what the sobriety is or what the bottom line behaviors are for the individual, does there need to be a unified definition for that versus just following the definition of the white book, which is Roy K's def definition. Well, I disagree that it's just Roy K's definition. Uh, he wrote it, so in that sense it's his, but it's, it's S.A.'s definition. Um, so, and I think that's what separates S.A. from S.L.A.A. and S.A.A.A. and all the other ones, which are defined programs, but what's different is that we do have a, a definition that um, I'm not saying every single individual agrees on, but as an as a overall international group, we have a definition. No sex except with your wife, including with yourself. I mean, that's, I don't have it in front of me to read exactly, but that's basically the definition. Um, what can happen within that is people, it's sort of like, you know, people will come up to me and say, I masturbated, but I did it finished. Should I change my sobriety? And I say, no, but don't do it again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like you, can get into, you can split hairs. You know, I had a wet dream. Should I change my sobriety? No, but are you, are you praying before you go to bed at night asking to be kept free from lust in your sleep? Or are you hoping to have a wet dream? What's your attitude? Do you know what I mean? So I don't get too caught up in, should you change your date or don't? If you have an orgasm, change your date. If you don't, don't change your date. But if you keep doing things that are going to lead to an orgasm, but you haven't had one yet, and you're just messing around, and you're asking all these questions, and you're driving everybody nuts, maybe, I don't care if you change your date or not, but stop doing it. My, my whole point is, stop going to the edge of the cliff and figuring out if you're going to jump or not, or waiting to see if you're going to fall or not, and asking a lot of questions about it. And start working the steps, which we didn't have a chance to get into. But as you said, start, wor start working the steps with the loving God expressed through your group so you can get far enough away from the cliff that you can start living life and talk about how do I improve my marriage? How do I get better at my job? How do we get better as a group? You can't have those conversations if you're always two seconds away from the next relapse or near relapse or was it a relapse. So that's what, you know, you want to move the whole operation Away from. Uh, yes, sir. Um, just wondering, as a sponsor, does it make sense to work the steps of somebody four through twelve, let's say, when they're not sober? Oh, thank you for asking that question. That is one of my favorite. I, I'm sorry, whoever I said my favorite, you just got beat out. I apologize. Okay, this, this is great, because I, I love when I get to use examples from alcoholism, okay? So, imagine this. I'm sponsoring this guy in Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? I relapse. He shows up to do his fifth step. I sit down with him with a big bottle of whiskey. <laughs> I'm already half drunk, but I'm not, as, I'm not as drunk as I'm planning to get. <laughs> Go ahead, start that fourth step. <laughs> you want to taste? Uh, probably not. You're kind of into this AA thing. Oh, I got you. All right, go ahead. Yeah, your mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, hold on. I need to take a drink. Mm. <laughs> I'm sick. Excuse me. <laughs> okay. Now. Dr. Bob. <laughs> no, nobody is going gonna, is gonna to say, oh, I should still sponsor this guy. Okay. We have people in SA. I know this could never happen in New Jersey to a nice, lovely Jewish community like yourselves. But we have people in SA. 
their sponsors relapse and they say, but I still want him to be my sponsor because I can still learn from him. That is the biggest pile of crap in the history of the universe. <laughs> it's like, if your sponsor relapsed, number one, all he's got to teach you is what to do wrong because he just did it wrong. And number two, he needs to take care of himself and his own recovery, not to be sponsoring you. For you to want him to still sponsor you is both crazy because you're nuts because he's drunk and selfish because you're thinking about yourself again, the individual more important than the group, instead of saying to this guy, oh my God, go get some help. I'm going to get to you. So, so you weren't asking directly about sponsorship, but it's, it's a similar question. So as a sponsor... If you're sponsoring a sponsee who's drunk, because it's not Alcoholics Anonymous, you don't see it. But if I was sponsoring you, now let's make it better. If you were sponsoring me, because that was really your question, and I wasn't staying sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I showed up at your house to do any one of the steps you mentioned, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and I was drunk, you would send me home. Because you would say, you can't work a step with me, you're drunk. So that's the, we don't see it in SA, but that's the answer to your question. If your sponsee is not sober, he is not on a step. People say he's on step one. He's not even on step one. He's, every sponsee who relapses must start the steps over every time because something went wrong in the last working of them. It's not a punishment. It's just a realistic consequence. It's a reality. Because the first step, which is you know, the one that gets us into this operation. It starts like this. Who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. It's truly awful to admit that glass in hand or something else in hand. <laughs> we have warped our minds into such an obsession for destructive drinking or lusting that only an act of providence can remove it from us. So, so a guy who has relapsed has not admitted complete defeat yet. He needs to get back to step one because without that foundation, without that moment where he has come to this realization, oh my God, I can't do this myself. I mean, step one is a horrible step. When people say, I can see any of the other 11 steps being somebody's favorite step. But when someone tells me step one is their favorite step, I say, well, what are you, out of your mind? <laughs> step one basically says, my life sucks because of this addiction, and there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. It's pure and utter, total powerlessness. Step two could be your favorite step, because that's where God comes in. There is a power greater than ourselves that can relieve this. But it's not me. My higher power can be anything I want it to be, except me. And so... That's the answer to your question. If you're taking someone through the steps who isn't sober, stop. You're wasting your time. You're wasting his time. And most importantly, he's wasting your time when there's someone else out there who's ready who you could be helping. Yes? Shmuel, thank you for coming. Says, oh, Shmuel. Shmuel. Oh, first of all, thank you so much for your beautiful uh, service and the Thank you. Message. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I want to get the same applause for Zev for bringing you in here. And Absolutely. <laughs> Um, I just want to say, first of all, I, I, I was one of those chronic relapsers, and um, the way I got sober was with the tough love that you're talking about. I uh, had people having nothing to do with me whatsoever, let alone coddling me. I actually had to go to AA to get sober. I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> Long story. But um, my question to you tonight, this is the Q&A here. Um, I'm not the one sharing, but I just wanted to ask a question. In NA, um, they, 
in many NA meetings, as a part of the uh, meeting format, they'll say um, in the beginning of the meeting, we want to hear from you, we don't want to hear from your drug. If you've used within the last 24 hours, please refrain from sharing. Would you, as a part of the culture of sobriety, would you recommend that we institute that in SA as well? That's great, man. I never heard that before. We don't, ha we don't do that, but I might take that back. I love that idea. <laughs> I think it's a great, great idea. I mean, if the group's for it, why not give it a try? Yeah. Yes, sir. So I just wanted to clarify the previous share uh, asked about uh, if someone's if we're reading about a certain step and then should we be sharing about that step or should we be sharing about a uh, person's top player, their, their, what they're working on, their, what they need to surrender, and you focus on the surrender. I was actually at your home meeting last, last week, Wednesday, in Chicago, and uh, there was a lead for about 10, 15 minutes. It was actually interesting. The guy is very, very sober, 18 years, but like he left, he left SA for 10 years and then came back. It was, uh, and everybody went around the room sharing about his leave. And there was no sharing about surrender or any of that during that particular meeting. So is there a right or a wrong, like, as to... Uh, yeah, well, you came on a lead night, so you would have heard something different if you heard our normal, which would be, you know, about the step. But... Uh, when someone gives an anniversary lead, often the comments will be reflected back, you know, what people heard from that lead. So it's recovery-based, but it's not necessarily based uh, on a certain, certain step. Yeah, so, all right, I'm going to take two more questions because we're supposed to stop at 10. We're a little over, so I'll take this one and this one, and then we'll go. Thank you. Um, I have a quick question. I guess it's different train of thought with, you know, married people and your wife, um, lust with the wife. In the book, sobriety, it's sex with yourself or sex with other women. One of the uh, one of the things in this practical guidelines for group recovery, they t they talk about periods of sexual abstinence in marriage, which I don't know that every marriage needs, but I think many marriages need a period of sexual abstinence, particularly at the beginning, uh, for the sexaholic to just sort of get his mind cleaned out, so that when he returns to uh, sexual activity, as you say, in the union with his wife, it is um, you know it is. Let me talk personally. If I'm being sexual with my wife. It's just like I talked about where am I here, what time is it now in terms of the group. It's the same thing in that experience. Am I with my wife? If I'm thinking about someone I, I had sex with other than my wife, that's a problem. If I need to think about that to get aroused, that means I still am not surrendered enough. I might need a period of abstinence with my wife. If I'm demanding still, if I'm still pouting for years, for years I was sexually sober. And initially I would complain about, you know, not getting enough sex, all this BS, you know. And then, after a while, I learned to shut up. But without opening my mouth, I was one of the greatest quiet powders in human history. <laughs> I mean, I was awesome at it, which meant it was terrible because she was still picking up this sense of demand, you know. And so, um, hey, sex with your wife is fine, but who are you bringing into that marriage bed? Are you bringing a sober person? It's okay to be aroused, you know. Sexual arousal is not necessarily the same thing with lust. The problem with sexaholics is we don't know one from the other, and one way to learn is a period of abstinence with your wife. And the p purpose of that is not just to learn, first of all, it's to learn that sex is optional, which is an absolutely shattering concept to most of us. 
What do you mean optional? I just spent the last 40 years thinking it was the only thing there was, optional. <laughs> I'm glad they don't say that at the first meeting. But, but, so that's part of it. But the other part is, how do I learn to have intimacy? You know, I, the word intimacy to me is into me see. How do I learn to truly be intimate with this partner of mine? Part of that is physical and sexual, but if that's primary and if that's first, I'm probably going to miss everything else and then end up turning that back into lust somehow. So how do I learn to be mentally intimate, to have conversation, to be emotionally intimate, to, to, list, to, to listen? I read a thing every day that says, when my wife talks to me, I will turn off TV, phone, computer. I will pay absolute attention to her. I have to read that every morning to remind myself because what I love to do when she starts telling a long story is, I have the newspaper and I'll be like, <laughs> you know, and usually she won't say anything, but she, she knows it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. And I'm, I'm learning how to be intimate. And sex is part of that, but it's not all of that. So last question for tonight. Yes, sir. You're welcome. Yeah, I have no, I have no problem. There's, there's no guy that I would ever say we don't want you coming or get lost or you know. I every guy in the in, in my group knows I love them. every single one of them. It's 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 crystal clear. Uh, but I, if if you had been in our group, I would have said the same thing. I would have said keep coming back. I love you. I hope you get this eventually. I'd also probably kicked your ass a few times, not physically because you're bigger than I am, but um, <laughs> but you know. I, I would have said, you know, I would have challenged you. I don't know, you know, what your specifics are, but I said, well, why don't you stop doing this? Why don't you try this? You know, I, I, so I, I'd have been hanging in there with you with both support and challenge, and I, and I think both are, are needed. So I, so we're starting up again tomorrow. For those who can come, is it, it's 7 o'clock. Okay. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com 
and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.